informed winsomeness is not naive. Informed winsomeness says that I fully recognize that I can be as winsome as possible in presenting gospel truth and I'll still be hated. But if I'm going to be hated, I want it to be because of the gospel and not because of me. Welcome to the Winsome Conviction Podcast. My name is Tim Yohoff. I'm a professor of communication at Biola University. My name is Rick Langer, and I'm a professor at Biola as well in the Biblical Studies and Theology Department. And I'm also the director of the Office of Faith and Learning here at Biola. And we're both the co-directors of the Winsome Conviction Project. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks uh, for having me. Oh, it's been great. You've been at Biola University doing several different events and sparking some great conversations. And we thought here at the Winsome Conviction Podcast, we'd talk about the mess that it seems like we've gotten into hmm. in a country. In the book uh, that's coming out soon called Winsome Conviction, Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church, uh, we talk about incivility and how Americans feel about it. There's a study that just came out that said that 98%, think about that, in a time when we can't agree on anything, yeah. 98% of us agree that incivility is threatening the very fabric of our nation. So our question to you, a person who's thought deeply about this, is how did we get here? Huh. Boy, that's a that's a long answer. <laughs> <laughs> We're a short um, podcast. Yeah, yes. yeah. You know, I think it's what we what we have what has happened is that we've gotten into a self-reinforcing cycle mm. of anger and rage. And so trend after trend sort of builds on each other, and each new development amplifies the next development. So let me put it this way. As I, I describe in my book, we have sorted ourselves geographically into like-minded enclaves. Mm. Uh, when like-minded people gather together, they tend to become more extreme. So they gravitate towards the more extreme end of their political side. Um, when people become more extreme, they begin to lose the ability to communicate well or easily with people on the other side of the political divide. So you're clustered around like-minded people. Um, whether you know it or not, whether you realize it or not, uh, you're becoming more entrenched in your political beliefs. Your political beliefs are moving more and stronger to one side of the political spectrum. And then you find that your ability to even engage on a lot of the most hot-button issues with people on that other side uh, diminish. And all of these things, which are the product of big cultural and social and religious forces, big forces, are then amplified by media. Now, I am not somebody who says, oh, let's blame the media. Uh, yeah, media has responsibility for its own actions, but we get the media we can we ask for. Mm, mm. Uh, we we tend to have this view that the American people cannot be cannot fail; they can only be failed. Um, the reality is, the American people can fail. Mm. And you know, look, I I I used to have this frustration in, before I became part of the media, and I would say, why is it that you know local news when it bleeds it leads? Why don't we have more news about good news? Why don't we have more news about things that are uplifting to the soul and to the spirit? And then I, I became a writer for National Review. And I then saw- Then reality set in. <laughs> and I saw, you know, I peeked under the hood and you looked at traffic numbers. Ah. What, what do people read? What do people read? And it's actually a real chore to get people to read what they say they want mm. as opposed to what they say they don't want. In other words, um, 
people will read stories that, um, you know, that the sort of, they will read stories that are more inflammatory. They will read stories that are more celebrity focused. They will, and so one of the things that was interesting is I, I, I began to try to work in themes, uh, you know, that better themes into writing about these things. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we, we as a people can't sit there and like point our finger at the media and say, why are you feeding me garbage? Because the media will turn right back and say, because you eat it up. You know, why are you feeding me junk food? Because you love it. And, and I think that that's one of the problems that we've had is we've had this culture. We're getting increasingly separate from each other. We're getting increasingly extreme. We're getting increasingly uh, unable to talk to each other across partisan boundaries, and we're consuming media that increasingly reinforces all of those biases. Let me pick up on that and just ask, what role does fear play in this whole process? It seems to me like a huge number of our, the let me put it this way, a huge number of the instruments in our political orchestra are turned to the key of fear. Mm. And we, we state things in a way that maximize fear, we repeat things that we find fearful. I sometimes have people send me conspiracy theory kind of videos that are clearly designed to maximize the fear impact on the viewer. Are we sucked into that the way our eyes are drawn to a car accident when we drive by on the freeway? Is there some other thing going on? And why is that so important in politics? Yeah, I mean... Fear has always sold as a motivator in politics. I mean, it, it's it's a good way. Fear is a very good way of disguising sort of your own problems. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, you may not like me. You may not like every aspect of my platform. You may not like everybody in our coalition, but we're not those guys. Yeah. And so you can, you can cover, fear can cover up a multitude of sins. Fear can cover up a multitude of imperfections. Fear can cover up a multitude of failures. By saying as bad as things are now, it will be worse if the other side wins. And so it's a, a very powerful motivator that hits people sort of at the center of their being. Now, I think um, Christians should be the people who are sort of most immune from that appeal. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, you know, how many times in the Old Testament is, you, you know, the children of Israel are getting ready to go into the promised land and do not be afraid, do not be afraid. You know, Paul, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of sound mind. The history of the church thriving, even in the face of brutal persecution, just terrifying persecution. Like, we, we American Christians should be among the most immune to fear population in the United States. And in many ways, the Christians that I know in other areas of their lives are just like that. I have seen Christians respond with incredible courage to personal adversity, whether it's a health issue or a, a loss of a business or a career challenge or a marital challenge or, you know, challenges involving children and just responding with this enormous amount of courage and faith. And then when politics gets involved, <laughs> it's often as if all of that is sort of forgotten. Yeah. And I got to stop socialism. You know, socialism is just around the corner, or I'm going to—the church is going to face the end of its liberty. And, and you, you then see people who have withstood incredible challenges in their, perfect, in their personal life respond in almost a panicked fashion to exaggerated uh, fears of, you know, of, their, of action by their political opponents. 
What, one of the things I think about with that as well is we've seen, when we read fear not statements in the Old Testament and, and mm. in scripture in general, when we read the narrative of the Old Testament, I think one of the things that we don't often call to mind the way we should is the fact the people in question for a fear not in any given time may have actually ended up having had a very bad experience. Mm -hmm. So in the time of Jeremiah, we have this wonderful message about, you know, the, the wonderful plans I have for you, plans for, for welfare and not calamity to give you yes. a future and a hope. But the people to whom that phrase was addressed ended up exactly experiencing the thing they feared, which is namely going to uh, yeah. exile in, in Babylon. And the thing that's hard for us is to stop and say, you know, Rick, the the fear not that it's going to be okayness is about the size and length of God's narrative and the work and project that he is doing. And it may not look that great in your individual moment. Um, and the problem is we want God to be writing a blog with a happy ending. As a matter of fact, <laughs> he's writing a Russian novel yeah. <laughs> in, in your chapter 18. Yeah, and in yeah. chapter 18, it's not looking good. No, it, wait, in a Russian novel, it's not looking good in chapters 1 through 100. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a really great point. And, you know, it's, it's again, you know, Romans 8.28, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord are called according to his purpose. Wait a minute, hold on. Record scratch. All things? Mm. All things? Mm. That can't possibly be right. All things? And so, um, and and also the fear not language was often used in face of extraordinarily, not just uh, when things didn't work out well over the short to medium to long earthly term, in front of truly calamitous, Yeah. Tr I mean, truly calamitous uh uh, tragedies. I mean, the sacking of a city, the the forced exile of an entire people. Um, you know, in Hebrews, as it walks through some of the persecutions, people being sawed in two. Yep. And and you know, when that happens, and it, it puts you in a sense of perspective. It, it grants you a sense of perspective. And I mean, and we don't even have to look back two thousand years, or you know, twenty five hundred years, or twenty seven hundred years, whenever to you know the the kingdom of the pre-Christian kingdom of Israel, we can look at things like uh, Egyptian Coptic Christians being assassinated by ISIS. We can, we can look at what's happened to Middle Eastern Christians and Christians in other parts of the world, just this ultimate challenge mm -hmm. that they faced, and some of them have faced brutal deaths. And in that circumstance, we say, uh, God did not give us a spirit of fear. In that circumstance. Yeah. And, and here we are in America, and, and I, I talk to a lot of Christians who are, they're actually afraid of what is going to happen in this country. And, and I can understand concern, absolutely. I can understand that this political party or that political party presents a problem um, that has to be addressed, but there's a difference between concern and fear. Those, those are different things. Yeah. So let me channel some of our critics. Mm -hmm. So we wrote a book called Winsome Persuasion, Christian Influence in a Post-Christian World, and this is what our critics said to us. You see, we're in a battle for our lives, and Milhoff and Langer are saying we need to be winsome. Huh. That is like the last thing we need to do, because there is a gay agenda. There is an, a feminist agenda, and our country is at risk, and we're now going to hit them with winsomeness? That... that that shows, I'm again channeling our critics, you don't understand where we are in the ballgame, right? You think 
we're at the beginning. I'm telling you the game's almost over, and maybe we can rise up and turn back the tide of X, Y, or Z. That's what our critics say to us, and I'm so appreciative of you, David, uh, of getting our foot off the gas pedal of going off the cliff, but you open yourself up for critique when you do that as well. Oh, my gosh, yes. Um, so here's what I my response to that. Write this right. down, Rick. <laughs> Write this down. Whatever he's okay. going to say, we're going to use it. So what is it exactly that you're advocating then with the understanding that the biblically orthodox position on all of those issues that you care about is a decided minority view in the United States? You do not have the biggest army behind you. Let, let's put aside the principle. So the principle, because what they're making is a very pragmatic argument. They're, mm -hmm. they're making a pragmatic argument. Let's put aside the principle. We'll circle back to that, okay? But this is what puzzles me, is they say, well, desperate, it's essentially desperate times call for desperate measures. Okay, and so the strategy is to be a giant jerk online. You know, the strategy is to be incredibly angry, and that's what? What is that going to do when you're a distinct cultural minority? What is that going to do? I, I come from a trial lawyer background. I was a trial lawyer. I was an appellate lawyer. I am very familiar with entering into an environment where I have to persuade somebody to my point of view. That is the whole goal. My client's interest, and sometimes those interests were, they well, number one, they were always vitally important to the client, even if you're fighting over just money. This could be the client's business. It could be the client's livelihood. But when I was fighting over liberty, I'm fighting over core constitutional values, things that are of vital importance to the American body politic. And you know what I have? I have a task of persuading. Mm -hmm. I have a task of taking people who are not necessarily on my side, Maybe they're completely unbiased. Maybe they kind of have a bias against me on the fr front end, and I have a task of persuading them. And the one thing I'm pretty darn sure about is that uh, going in there with this aggressive rage is not persuasive. Mm. It's not persuasive. Mm. One of the goals of a of a, you know one of my one of my goals as a litigator going being in front of a jury, talking to a judge. I wanted to be the most reasonable person in that room. Mm. I wanted to make it easy for them to rule for me. I wanted to make it easier for them to have, you know, maybe some decent basic regard for my client. And, and to the extent that that basic regard for me helped them have basic regard for my client, all the better. And so I'm trying to humanize my client. I'm trying to express the cause that I'm, because I'm asking them to rule for me, whether they, they agree with me, my, my religious position or not, I, I'm trying to humanize my client. I'm trying to appeal to common values. Mm. All of these things, I think, are absolutely critical if you're staking out a minority position mm. against a majority worldview. And there's this really weird view I see online. And I, 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 in a way, I get why they, they think it because... Really angry voices online can amass a pretty good following, mm -hmm. but it's still just a, a, you're still a minority. You know, you, like you might be grabbing a lot of eyeballs on your side, but you're still going into the culture from with an unpopular position, and you're arguing to a culture that does not agree with you largely that we have a place in this community, we have a place in this culture, and that our liberty should be protected not just by us but by you also. By, our dis by those who disagree with us. So that's a pragmatic. I don't, 
I honestly don't, I don't get the argument that, um, and, and, and we have to be clear, being winsome is not being a doormat. Right. It's right. not being a doormat. Yeah. It is, you know, it is defending life. It is defending religious liberty through a particular manner of presentation, through a particular attitude and morality of presentation. So that's the pragmatic argument. What's your alternative to winsomeness? What, and, and again, and also another thing is winsomeness is not a desperate ple- beg. It's not a beg for love from the world. Right. right. That's not what it is. It, it's informed winsomeness is not naive. Informed winsomeness says that I fully recognize that I can be as winsome as possible in presenting gospel truth and I'll still be hated. But if I'm going to be hated, I want it to be because of the gospel and not because of me. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Makes a lot of sense. And yes. so, so that's the pragmatic element. The, the principled element of it is at what point, it, you know, it does, the scripture does not say love mercy and walk humbly with the Lord your God unless the libs don't like you. Or it doesn't say bless your enemies and doesn't mandate kindness uh, unless they're, you know, it, it, unless it's not working politically anymore. Okay, can I? So let me push back one one little more instance. This mm-hmm. is like a cathartic moment for us. Um, so th- here's what critics part two will say. Okay, yeah, I'm gonna grant you the um, blessing for insult passages. I'm mm-hmm. gonna grant you the the feed your enemy when they're hungry. Mm-hmm. Okay, but you're ignoring the prophetic side of scripture. You're ignoring. The prophets who say, thus saith the Lord, and they didn't walk in winsomely, nor did even Paul deal winsomely with the Judaizers, yeah. right? So so what would you say to those who are saying, yeah, I, I'll grant you all that, but but there is prophetic speech that needs to come hard and fast, thus saith the Lord, and I'm sorry if your feelings are hurt by that. Right. Uh, well, you know, there's a couple of, a couple of things I... I respond to that. And then they'll often add, you know, Jesus cleared out the temple. He did. Yeah. That, that's a very handy, off-quoted passage. Yeah. Yes. So Jesus has, this is the understatement of the century, Jesus has some advantages over me. <laughs> okay. I'm glad we got that cleared yeah, up. Jesus that's important. Has... <laughs> I'll make a note of that. Yeah. And one of them is that he can see into the hearts of men. Mm. And I cannot. And so when he says to the Pharisees, you're like whitewashed tombs, you know, you're, which is Pretty strong, stern stuff. Beautiful outside, full of dead men's bones on the inside. You know what? He knows that they're like whitewashed tombs. <laughs> yep. When I look at a political opponent, or I, you know, I look at a cultural somebody who disagrees with me, culture. I, their their heart, the state and the condition of their heart, is much more opaque to me. Mm. Now I can I can say that this action in light of scripture is wrong. Um. One of the things I have a much harder term time doing is discerning their motivation. I have a much harder time with that. And, and let me just add on that point. One of the things that has struck me in watching conversations and participating in them is oftentimes we don't actually even want to look into their heart. Yeah. We don't ask a question to invite them to open up, but rather we just come back on the issue, and then the obscurity of their heart isn't even an issue that I'm not like Jesus. Yeah. It's simply that I haven't been interested. I haven't wanted to find it out. And, and the other thing is the prophetic voice. So, and, and then I'll even go further, and I'll say that Isaiah and Paul have advantages over me. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, I have never had a vision from the Lord like Isaiah. 
and and that that sort of you know the, we're talking so what we're talking about is 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 taking people who have had distinct encounters very distinct world historical encounters with the living god and have therefore acted in accordance and acted under the specific mission granted to them and say that that is is that an equivalent model for our behavior or is more of the model for our behavior the things that they told us to do and so i you know i have not had a uh, i have not had a damascus road experience right um you know in many ways i'm grateful for that because i also thank god didn't participate in persecuting believers which was preceded the damascus road experience i have not seen the glory of god in the way that caused uh, Isaiah to say, woe is me, I am undone, you know, and so with, do you, I, I think if we start to try to compare, compare ourselves to Isaiah, to Jeremiah, to Paul, we need to be really humble about that. Yeah. Do we have that level of discernment? Do we have that level of communication with the most holy God? Do we? Are we more in the position of the people to whom Paul and Isaiah were speaking to, calling out our sin, for example, or are uh, describing a way in which we interact with the world. And I think that what you often see is you'll see Christians who will say, look at Isaiah, and they put, themsel in the, they put themselves in Isaiah's shoes more than they put themselves in the shoes of Isaiah's audience, and I'm not sure that's the right mm. placement. Mm. I've only had one vision from the Lord. The Lord said, it's time to shave your head. It's just time. <laughs> the fight is over. You fought the good fight. It's I, just... I had the same revelation. <laughs> and I would like to go on record saying I have not had that revealed to yeah. me. You got some great hair, Rick. Uh, hey, David, can I go back to one thing uh, mm -hmm. I thought was fascinating from a communication standpoint? It's when, it's when you have these um, isolated groups, when we insulate ourselves from the perspectives of others, it, it almost perpetuates a particular kind of response. We were talking before the podcast that we're fans of uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. a classic from Eric Maria remark. And I'll never forget, I actually closed my master's thesis with this quote from the mm -hmm. book because it was opening the gay Christian dialogue is what I focused right. on. And this is what he says, just to set up real quick, uh, this is trench warfare, the bombs are exploding everywhere, and a French soldier has gotten disoriented and jumped into the trench of a German soldier who just instinctively bayoneted him. Mm -hmm. Didn't kill him instantly, now no, he has to I watch him. Yep, scene. Oh, it's awful. Has to watch him die. It's awful. And then afterwards goes through his personal possessions. And, but this is what it, how he described it. I thought this was really good about what you were saying about groupthink. Mm -hmm. Comrade, I did not want to kill you. If you jumped in here again, I would not do it if you would be sensible too. But you were only an idea to me before, an abstraction that lived in my mind and called forth its appropriate response. It was that abstraction I stabbed. But now for the first time, I see that you are a man like me. I thought of your hand grenades, of your bayonet, of your rifle. Now I see your wife, your face, and our fellowship. Forgive me, comrade. We always see it too late. Mm. Is that not powerful? Wow. Mm -hmm. And so we're stuck in political trench warfare, mm -hmm. right? And it's the abstraction of you liberal, you conservative, 
because I don't know any liberals or conservatives because of my, the group. So now I stab the abstraction and we dehumanize that person. And so what I love about what you talk about is we're going to have to rehumanize people. And let me just talk about a podcast we just did, Rick, is where we took President uh, Trump and Vice President Biden and we just told humanizing stories about them because if it's a caricature, then you strip them of their humanity and you just attack a caricature. So we, we humanize both candidates. It was a very interesting process. So comment on that quote and maybe how we're doing a version of it ourselves. Yeah, I mean, that, that quote is incredibly powerful. Uh, and it really encapsulates, now that's in the extreme circumstances of war, but it encapsulates the on online discourse. Mm. And I, I was talking to somebody the other day and and if you follow me or, God forbid, read my replies on Twitter uh, or have followed some of the controversies uh, that have sort of clung to me over these last few years, um, you'll see that I receive an enormous amount of just extreme, extreme amounts of hate and mm. insults. And, and I was talking to somebody about it the other day, and they said, uh, you're not a person to them, you're an idea. And that's kind of scary. Wow. And I, that was the, that's true. And so what ends up happening is uh, often on social media, because on social media, your thoughts are accompanied by your picture. Here's you and your thought. And so then you become this, the human you becomes the stand in for the thought. There's no separation between the you and the thought. And that, and so therefore the you must be destroyed. The you must be um, humiliated. The you must be annihilated. And, and we see this time and time and time again. Uh, you know, I, someone asked me, you know, what's the difference between being a litigator and being a journalist? Uh, and I said, well, you know, it's when I was litigating, I would engage in years of conflict with the attorney on the other side, sometimes advocating a position that I fundamentally disagreed with and I thought was bad for America. But you know what never crossed my mind once was to, while I'm litigating against him, try to destroy his job, try to destroy his public reputation, to try to insult and humiliate him to such an extent that the interaction in the litigation was such a misery that it destabilized him mentally and emotionally. Never crossed my mind and I never had an opposing counsel, even in the most intense case possible, who ever did try to do that to me. Mm, mm. In, in the most intense cases, sometimes where they're acting like jerks in the litigation, they never went that far. The instant I entered into the world of commentary and opinion was the instant I realized that people are not litigating my idea. They're often litigating my very existence in this career and the very possibility that I could enjoy a good reputation in this business. Wow. And that's the difference. That's how toxic it is. So, so you're telling us that the pleasant, civil, human environment is modern litigation. <laughs> I would. And the toxic, dehumanizing environment is the social media we love to immerse ourselves in. Yes. Okay, yes. just yeah, want to yeah, make sure yeah. we had that cleared up. I'll just say this. A four-year-long commercial litigation battle is practically a Bible study compared to Twitter. <laughs> All right, so, I, let, so let's talk about this. Mm -hmm. uh, I've made the comment that I think most Christians should get off Twitter and get off Facebook until they can claim what Peter says, right? 
share your opinion with gentleness and reverence. And if you're not ready at a heart level to do that, or the medium doesn't let you do that, then perhaps we need to abdicate that space until our heart as virtuous Christian communicators is in the right place, and we're not going to just jump back into the fray. Uh, let me put it this way. If you can't engage on social media without losing your cool and, in, and devolving into personal insults and devolving into viciousness, you need to flee from it like Joseph fled from adultery. <laughs> I'm not—it is, it is right. wrecking your soul. It is yeah. wrecking it. And, and, I, and, and you're wrecking other people while you do it. Mm. That's the thing is mm. that you may say, oh, I'm, man, I really shouldn't have vented like that. I really shouldn't have said that. And maybe you don't want to apologize because that would be a sign of weakness, and nobody wants to show any weakness. But you may have wrecked another human being. You know, Scripture says a bruised reed, we, you know, he shall not break. A smoldering wick, he shall not put out. Yeah. What we are right now is a nation of bruised reeds breaking each other yeah. every day. And you have no idea what that person, or you often have no idea what the person you just lit up on social media is enduring in their lives and their capacity to handle it. And one of the things that I found, which is um, really interesting and sad, is sometimes a person's, many times, a person's emotional fragility is inversely related to their online toughness. Wow. The greater the toughness they're projecting, the less toughness they actually possess in their mind, in their emotion, in their soul. See, I could see somebody saying, well, that's not my problem. Hey, I'm sorry. You're the one who came at me. I'm coming right back at you. But as Christian communicators, we're to care about that. We know yeah. Book of Proverbs that a word spoken in a certain way can break a bone. Yeah, right. Well, so we're to care about them, regardless. That's what Peter says. While being insulted, I want you to give a blessing instead. Yeah, we we uh, Tim and I often uh, talk about James three seventeen and eighteen. It's just a passage we use when we're talking about the way we we discuss things, and it is a. It, it talks about you know, the wisdom from above that mm -hmm. is first pure, then peaceable, then open to gentle and open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, uh, sincere and pure. And, you know, this is the vision of it. The interesting thing about that introduction, it isn't for all of the talk that James gives about speech. This passage is actually introduced with a comment about wisdom. Mm -hmm. And I think this goes back to what you were talking about before, David, about the practical argument and then the sort of imperative argument of Scripture. Yeah. The interesting thing here is that you're saying, oh, my imperative to be pure and peaceable and gentle and open to reason apparently is also a strategic move in terms of its being wise. It is an example of the wisdom from above. Right. And I think sometimes we think the only power that's operative through the things we do is whatever we can marshal. Yeah. And I think biblically the notion here is that, no, there's things that you do that may seem like a sacrifice, but the end of that sacrifice is this incredible power for transformation, mediated not by your power, but rather by the intervention of the Holy Spirit yes, or God's absolutely. work in our midst. And, you know, also going back to this social media point, I mean, uh, let me uh, use the Spider-Man principle, with great power comes great responsibility. Mm. It also applies even when you don't have great power. With increasing power comes increasing <laughs> responsibility. And, you know, one of the things that I learned just even myself is that— um, so I, I don't have a huge Twitter following, like 230,000 people or something like that. And and what I found is 
even when I direct my attention to somebody um, negatively, if I direct my attention to somebody negatively, they will suffer a consequence that I do not intend. Mm. Because when I direct them, I'm also directing this collection of people. Some, many of them are great. Many of them are awesome. Some of them are not. And, and there are consequences that flow from that. And mm. so it's one of the reasons why, especially on Twitter, although I, I don't always, every now and then you read something, you're just like, ugh, and you're going to, you know, you're, you're going to respond. Um, but I try to be very cautious on Twitter and to, to the extent to which I direct critique at a person as opposed to uh, at an idea or the extent to which I'm going to direct people where I'm going to try to fight back against people who are, who are attacking me personally because that unleashes forces that I don't, that I'm not in control yeah. of. Now, you're leading up a parade, and you have no visual cue of who your followers are. Yeah, right, exactly. And they just come in behind you. Now, there's an there's a exception to that. And if people come after my wife or my, mm. you know, my family, well, you know, my obligation is, you know, I have a turn-the-other-cheek obligation. I do not have an obligation that is turn my wife's cheek. Right, right. <laughs> and so I, you know, when people are cruel and vicious or liable or slander my wife as they have online, or go after my children as they have, then then I'm much more. I, my response is very different to that than it is if they're, you know, attacking me. David, thank you so much for being with us. This, these are great thoughts. I think they're like way too convicting. So uh, we probably should have cut this off at the five minute mark. But thank you so much for convicting us. We love what you do. Uh, check out David's new book, Divided We Fall. And check out the Winsome Conviction website. Just go to winsomeconviction.com. You can hear about our podcast. You can see resources. We have some great um, books available that kind of carry on this discussion. David, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me.